Section 10 of the Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melanie Young. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rotwheeler. Zoology, the Vertebrates, Reptiles, Part 1. The frogs, toads, elfs, and salamanders are intermediate between aquatic and terrestrial vertebrates, between fishes and reptiles. In early life, they are tadpoles living in water, breathing by gills, having no true limbs, but a fringe of fin like the median fins of many fishes. Later, they undergo a metamorphosis, bud out true limbs with feet, lose their gills and develop lungs, and become adapted to live on land. They are to some extent intermediate between fishes and reptiles, but are in fact much closer to reptiles if we compare the adult animals. Although fish-like in their early development, there is a wide gap between them and any true fishes, living or extinct. There are two living groups of amphibians, the frogs and toads, tailless, and the efts and salamanders with long, heavy tails. The efts or newts and salamanders look very like lizards, but may be distinguished by their broad, flat heads. They frequent damp woods and borders of ponds, and may often be found by overturning stones or logs in such places. Most of them are quite small, but the giant salamander of Japan, Cryptobranchus, reaches a length of five feet, and the closely related hellbender is sometimes 18 inches long. The smaller efts are common in all the northern continents, and a few are found in North Africa and along the Andes Mountains, as far south as Argentina. Some of the tailed amphibians retained their gills throughout their life, especially if the conditions favor their continued aquatic life. The toads and frogs are familiar to everyone and are found in all parts of the world, except in some of the oceanic islands. Toads are harmless creatures, helpful to the gardener from the quantities of insects they consume, many of them curiously interesting in their mating and egg-laying habits, and it is hard to see why they should be regarded with such general aversion. Like most amphibians, there is a poisonous secretion in the skin, which protects them from the attacks of more active animals. But this is not exuded from the surface save in extremity, and they can be handled with perfect safety, the poison acting only internally. There is no ground for the notion that warts on the skin are the result of handling toads. A curious myth found in early books on natural history and embalmed by Shakespeare in a quotation familiar to all credits the toad with bearing a precious jewel in its head. The frogs, less poisonous than toads, are protected by their greater activity and more amphibious habits. The tree toads are protected by their genius at concealment, and although everyone has heard their loud trilling, it is surprising how few persons have seen the little green chap 
with sucker-like discs on the tips of the toes, who is responsible for it. The modern amphibians are diminutive and specialized descendants of what was once a numerous and important race. The primitive amphibians, or armored amphibians, of the coal period were the first of land vertebrates and were the dominant type of land animals until the appearance of the reptiles. These armored amphibians were much like salamanders in appearance, but the top of the head was solidly roofed over by bone and the underside of the body covered in scaly armor. Some of them were gigantic as compared with their modern descendants, ten or twelve feet in length, with skulls two feet long and a foot and a half wide. From some of these ancient amphibians were probably descended the reptiles, birds and mammals of later geologic ages. The class of reptiles includes several very diverse kinds of animals, the snakes, lizards, crocodiles, and turtles. Superficially, they have not much in common except for the scaly skin, and that they mostly lay eggs and all breathe by lungs throughout their lives. The construction of the skeleton and the various details of internal organization show that they are in fact related to each other, though not very closely, and geological history shows that they are the scattered and specialized survivors of a class of vertebrates, which for countless centuries was the dominant type of land animal. The age of reptiles is estimated to have endured for some nine millions of years. The age of mammals, which followed it and culminated in the appearance of man, for three millions of years. Compared with these vast periods, the duration of historic time shrinks into insignificance. The reptiles evolved from the primitive amphibians of the coal period, and the earliest reptiles are with difficulty distinguished from them. But they were more progressive in adapting themselves to the active and varied life of the land, and developed a higher and more active organization. The most important and interesting of these ancient reptiles were the dinosaurs, adapted to live on dry land, and taking the place in nature that was subsequently to be taken by land mammals, the ordinary quadrupeds of the present day. But in addition to these, there were reptiles adapted to flying, and others which reinvaded the ocean and became adapted to swimming, although still keeping their air-breathing habit. The oldest reptiles, appearing at the latter end of the cold period, were clumsy, heavy-bodied beasts, with short, crooked legs like crocodiles or turtles, some of them carnivorous, others herbivorous. The most singular of these ancient reptiles were the pelicosarians, or fin-backed reptiles, with an enormous, rigid, bony fin on the back, the purpose of which, unless for ornament, is a standing puzzle to zoologists. The dinosaurs are perhaps most obviously distinguished as long-legged reptiles, for in all of them the legs are long and straight, as in modern land quadrupeds, instead of short and crooked, as in modern reptiles. They were the characteristic land animals during the whole of the age of reptiles, comprising the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous periods, 
and many of them reached a gigantic size, rivaling the largest of living animals. Besides these gigantic forms, there were numerous smaller, lighter, more agile kinds, many of them known only by their footprints, preserved in the ancient tidal flats of the Connecticut Valley and elsewhere. And there is reason to believe that there were multitudes of small upland dinosaurs of which nothing is known, because they never frequented the river bottoms, swamps, and seashores where sediments were being deposited that might preserve their remains to the present day. Only in their modified descendants, readapted to swamp or riverside life, can be perceived the traces remaining of what must have originally been an adaptation to upland life. The hugest of the dinosaurs were the Brontosaurus and the Diplodocus, reaching a length of 60 to 80 feet and a mass of over 30 tons in weight. These were probably amphibious animals, adapted to wade in water from 20 to 50 feet in depth. They had a massive elephantine body, supported on four straight, rather long legs, with feet very like those of elephants, except for large, blunt claws, one on the forefoot, three on the hindfoot, which may have served to anchor the foot in slippery mud. The neck was long and flexible, enabling the animal to wade to considerable depth while keeping his head above water. The tail long, heavy, and massive, as in most reptiles. The skin was not scaly, but naked, thick, and heavy like that of a whale. The head is very small in proportion, the teeth adapted to tearing off soft water plants or other such material, but not to chew the food nor to attack other animals. The brain is extremely small and was of low organization, even for a reptile the great mass of the nervous system being the nerves and ganglia of the spinal cord. From this, it is seen that the animal was slow and unintelligent, the actions chiefly reflex, and the brontosaurus may be regarded as little more than a huge automaton, a vast storehouse of animal matter, with but little intelligence and its movements mostly directed by reflex action. Through its aquatic life, the water buoying up most of its enormous weight, it was able to attain a size comparable only with the modern whales and sharks. But its movements must have been slow and clumsy, and on land it would be utterly helpless. It was protected from its chief enemies, the carnivorous dinosaurs, by being able to wade to a depth beyond their reach. Skeletons, or cast of skeletons, of some of these gigantic amphibious dinosaurs have recently been mounted in several of the larger museums in America and Europe and are among the most impressive records of the past history of the world. The carnivorous dinosaurs were very different in appearance and habits. They were biped reptiles, with long hind limbs and bird-like feet, Small forelimbs, large, sharp claws, short neck and large head with sharp-pointed, saw-edged teeth, and a long, lizard-like tail. Tracks of this type of dinosaur are abundant on the Connecticut sandstones, 
and show that they usually walked or ran on the hind limbs, seldom touching either forelimbs or tail. These dinosaurs lived throughout the age of reptiles, both small, agile species and large, powerful ones. The most gigantic was the Tyrannosaurus of the late Cretaceous, 40 feet in length with a skull 5 feet long and teeth projecting 4 to 6 inches from their sockets. This animal must have nearly equaled an elephant in bulk and was adapted to prey upon the huge armored dinosaurs. Other types of huge dinosaurs discovered in recent years are the armored stegosaurs, covered with bony plates and spines, the great horned ceratopsians with enormous skulls defended by long, sharp horns, and the duck-billed trachodon, an iguanodon, unarmored and with broad, horny, duck-like bill. These animals were all herbivorous, and except the stegosaurs, had a fairly effective battery of grinding teeth. They reached a length of 20 to 30 feet and a bulk comparable to a hippopotamus or an elephant. They also had numerous smaller relatives, more agile and apparently more upland in their habitat, since their skeletons are rarely found complete in the ancient sediments of the river valleys and marshes of the Age of Reptiles. Mostly, they are known to science only by the scattered bones and fragments brought down by the rivers from higher levels. The flying reptiles, or pterodactyls, were contemporaries of the dinosaurs and equally remarkable, although less gigantic in size. These dragons of the prime had the forelimbs converted into bat-like wings by the extension of the little finger into a long, slender-jointed rod supporting a membrane wing like that of bats. The tail is rudimentary or converted into a long steering blade, and the skeleton throughout is very light and fragile, the bones being hollow and pneumatic, filled with air as they are in birds. Most of the pterodactyls were small, from six inches to three feet expanse of wing. But in the late Cretaceous appeared large forms, pteranodon, some twenty feet from tip to tip of the wings, with large, straight, toothless beaks, adapted apparently to spearing fish. The pteranodon skeletons are found in marine formations deposited far out at sea, while the small pterodactyls, with shorter wings, lived near the land. All of them were apparently adapted for soaring rather than fluttering, and they may be regarded as nature's nearest approach to a modern aeroplane. In the rivers and swamps of the age of reptiles might be found crocodiles and turtles not very unlike those of the present day, and a variety of extinct reptiles more or less resembling them. In the seas lived several kinds of marine reptiles, some of gigantic size. These, like the cetaceans, seals, and sirenians of the present day, were derived from terrestrial ancestors, but had reinvaded the sea, where they competed to advantage with the finny autochthones by reason of their superior organization and air-breathing habit. The plesiosaurs were long-necked, 
with compact bodies and long, turtle-like flippers. The ichthyosaurs were very fish-like in outward appearance, with short necks, long slender jaws, and shark-like tail, and were evidently adapted to swift swimming like the mackerel shark or the dolphin. The mosasaurs were more nearly related to the lizards, but with flipper-like feet, large heads, with powerful jaws and sharp, stout teeth, and long, compressed tails. Some of the mesosaurs and plesiosaurs reached a length of 40 feet. The ichthyosaurs were somewhat smaller. All these great marine reptiles had become extinct by the end of the Cretaceous period, and their place in the world was taken by marine mammals, ancestors of the cetaceans of our modern seas. The world must have appeared strange from a modern viewpoint during the age of reptiles. The imagination must picture dry land and swamps populated by long-legged reptiles, many of them fantastic and bizarre in appearance, and all utterly unlike any living animals. The vegetation would be less strange, but its tropical aspect and the absence of many of the more abundant higher types of plants could hardly fail to impress the observer. In place of birds were the pterodactyls soaring through the air or hanging bat-like from trees or projecting rocks. Along the seashore we might find many familiar invertebrates, corals, starfish, sea urchins, crustaceans, and mollusks, and with them swarms of nautilus-like ammonites and squid-like belemnites. Along the shores and far out at sea, besides the numerous types of fishes, more or less like those of the present day, would be found numbers of the huge voracious marine reptiles, plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs, and, in the crustaceous period, mosasaurs, rulers of the deep, as the cetaceans are today. End of section 10. Recording by Melanie Young.